I didn't know it was missing. I didn't even know I had property. But what did you lose? Money? No. Uh, he doesn't I even know. Okay. I don't even know what I lost. He has no... Welcome, everyone, to the Four Corners Podcast. My name is Jake. My name is Orton. I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about Carrie Stainer. Where did you get your research on this one, Katie? The book on this one was The Yosemite Murders by Dennis McDougall. So we're going to Yosemite. Where's that? California. It's a national park in California, correct? Yes. But do they have geysers that people can fall in? Do you? Who falls in a geyser? A geyser shoots straight into the air. But people can still fall in them. I'm sticking to this. Okay. They have it happen at Yellowstone. I was thinking Yosemite has a, it starts with a Y. There's a geyser, has a Y in it. They probably got geysers there. Mm. And people fall into them all the time, disappear, and they don't get enough coverage on podcasts. Sound logic. Thank sound, you. sound, logic. Thank Are you. you trying to imply that's what's happening in this case? No, I'm implying that, no, no, of course not. I was just thinking back to last week when people went missing. And that was not that last was, week. That was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago when people went missing. And You're not fall. thinking at all. No, that, I was thinking back. We didn't even talk about Yosemite. Yeah, but Yosemite, we talked about Yellowstone. So I'm asking, does Yosemite have geysers? No, it's Yellowstone. So uh, other national parks have to have geysers in them. I'm sure they're they have geysers. There's probably yeah, there's probably a geyser somewhere in full of bodies. Stuff. But that's an easy search for you to do on Google and let us know. Yeah, didn't you just read us like twenty facts? Yeah, did you see anywhere about the famous geysers at <laughs> Yosemite? I didn't actually, uh, you know, put in the keyword geysers when I was looking at Yosemite, uh, but you know. How do you spell Yosemite? Is that where Yosemite Sam gets his name? Yeah, he's from the National Park. He just runs around shooting shit. I just figured, you know, why would you call something Yosemite Sam if he wasn't from Yosemite? You guys have a lot of questions I can't answer. There are over 10,000 hydrothermal features, including over 300 geysers in the park. Wow. Great. So why did you but ask me? Yeah, Katie is not a national park expert. She's a murder woman. Jake was reading something about Yellowstone there. Um, Yellowstone has geysers. Jellystone has talking bears. And Yosemite has dead bodies. Katie, go ahead and start us off. February 1999 began happily for Carol Sund, her 15-year-old daughter Juliana, and their family friend, 16-year-old Silvina Peloso, who was visiting the Sunds from Argentina. Sylvina was leaving soon, so as a farewell present, Carol decided to take her to one of California's most popular destinations, Yosemite National Park. It's a really nice farewell present. We've already established in recent episodes, national parks are just the cruise ships of the land dwellers. That's, that's what we established? Is that yeah, it's easy to, from that episode? Yeah, it's easy to go missing in a national park. Not a lot of people go missing on cruise ships, man. Everybody stuck on dude, a cruise ship. No, that's how you go missing, is no, on a cruise ship. That's how people kill people, though. Never to be seen again. You fall into the ocean, and nobody stops. They don't They don't see you. You're, you're an ant. They left from Eureka on the 12th, stopping in Stockton, so Julie could participate in a cheerleading competition before arriving in El Portal, a small tourist town just outside Yosemite. Where is Eureka in the great, vertically expansive state of California, Elongata? It's uh, north, and it's also a television show from sci-fi where science fiction-y things happen in Eureka. Actually, I've actually never watched the show. Carol was extremely organized and planned the trip, so after two days in the park, they would meet her husband and other three children at the airport in San Francisco, where Julie would fly home to return to school, and Sylvina and the rest of the family would continue to Phoenix, Arizona, 
to visit family friends and see the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is the exception when it comes to national parks and people going missing. 12 people there die a year. Yeah, but they fall off. Everyone knows where they go. And I'm telling you, they don't go to Garcia's. God damn it. I'm not even going to acknowledge it. The trip was going smoothly as the women arrived in El Porto at their hotel, the Cedar Lodge. There, they spent their first night, waking early the 15th to spend their day hiking and enjoying Yosemite. Around 6, the three returned to town, ate dinner at a local restaurant, and retired back to their room for the night around 7.30. Sometime that night, the women disappeared without a trace. When they didn't arrive at the airport to meet Jen's son, Carol's husband, and the rest of the family, Jen's wasn't concerned. He was sure that there had been a mix-up with the flights, a common occurrence at airports, or that he had confused Carol's plans in his own mind. He waited as long as he could for them before deciding they were likely already in Arizona. He boarded his flight, still only mildly worried. I know cell phones were kind of new and pricey and everything in 99, but if they can afford to live in California and take these flights for driving length trips, I think they could have sprung for a couple of Nokia bricks and they 150 minutes or something. She had a cell phone, but she didn't take it. Oh man, gotta take your cell phone. His fear grew when he arrived in Arizona and Carol and Sylvina were not there. But once again, he assumed something had happened at the airport that delayed them. Once the afternoon rolled around, he called Carol's parents, who told them they hadn't heard from the women either. Jens immediately knew something was very wrong and called California Highway Patrol, thinking they'd been in an accident somewhere on the way to the airport. Now, there wasn't, like, that instant connection type of anxiety in 1999. Like, uh, people didn't have to know every update the minute it happens so this is kind of like indicative of the time where he's not really worried about it because flights you know m get missed all the time and you don't get to contact that person unless it's through the airport phone and you figured well maybe they got on the connecting flight already didn't have time to do that so it's it's not too crazy for back then like these days though it's crazy to think about that you would like fly a couple hundred 300 miles away without knowing that like everything's going as it should yeah, because, I mean, it'd be weird if someone didn't contact you that they'd missed the flight or something. These days. The search began as soon as the call came through dispatch, but it was almost as Carol, Julie, and Sylvina had vanished without a trace. Their rental car, a red Pontiac Grand Prix, was missing from the hotel parking lot, and there was no sign of foul play inside the hotel room. Red cars are usually easy to spot. I don't know where I was going with that, but they're usually easy, easier to spot, so, I mean, that's a good thing. They tried. It was not there. Carol had mentioned that they were going to go back to the park for a few hours before leaving for their flight, before they'd gone missing. A search of the 1,100-square-mile park was a daunting task, but began right away. Are you kind of thinking what I'm thinking right now, Katie? It's just like an alien, alien abduction. Absolutely not. No? Not thinking Absolutely that? Absolutely not. Hmm, I wonder why. 1,100 square miles is bigger than exactly 2% of the states in the United States. And the facts just keep on raining. On February 19th, police were notified that Carol's wallet, still containing her credit cards, was found in the middle of a busy intersection 86 miles from Yosemite. This only served to confuse the police more, as their search area just grew exponentially, as well as the question of if Carol had even been there. Two days later, Carol's parents announced a $250,000 reward for any information on the women's whereabouts. The reward money finally gave the case the boost it needed, and local police announced the next day that the FBI was getting involved. Because the FBI is always trying to get after that reward money, right? No. 
They get the reward money? No. If they solve the Absolutely. case? Absolutely, no. Are you sure? Why? They no. Split it up between it's the federal the government. They're not going to take a civilian's money. Bonus time. Pshaw, 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 they do pshaw. that through taxes already. Oh, <laughs> politics. <laughs> so now they have this huge expansive area that, there's, that they have to search just because her wallet was found. Well, not just because, but because her wallet was found 86 miles away. Yes. Now... They gotta go 86 miles in both directions, or they just go 86 miles in that direction? How do you even know? Why would they go in both directions? Because what if someone took her wallet and went one way, and someone took her body and went the other way? They don't know that. They have to follow... This is bad questions. Continue, please. <laughs> you can't just say bad question and move on from my question. Yes, I can. Why would they go the opposite direction of where the wallet was found? They were already in the opposite direction okay, of where no, the wallet was found. If you go 86 miles no. back the other way, you're back where you started. If you're smart, no, no, you don't get it. They they now expand their search bubble, and if you're a smart person and you kill someone, then you catch a wild hog and you tie the wallet to it so it takes it off. Well, we don't even direction. know that they're dead. Either way, you split the, the okay. person slash body up from their wallet to throw the police off the trail, and you have to use wildlife to do this. You uh, would get caught. Don't ever kill someone. Yeah, you'd be really bad at it. You need I'd to just have like the best time with the animals. You need to Ed Kemper it and just call police immediately and tell them that you did it. Had something occurred inside the park, the woman would be in federal jurisdiction rather than the state of California's. Law and Order Park System would be an amazing show. Did you guys know that if you get a speeding ticket? From a park ranger, it doesn't go on your driving record? Good to know, in case I'm ever speeding through the national parks. That's how it is on reservations, too. Is it? Mm -hmm. Well. Two weeks after they joined the case, they still had absolutely nothing, besides the somber announcement that the women were most likely dead. Do they actually make those announcements? Yes. I kind of feel like they could just let people put two and two together and draw their own conclusions instead of, like... Just shooting everyone's hopes down. That's people literally need to know. the last thing you want to do is let people draw their own conclusions when it comes to something like this. If you are trying to find a missing person, it's better to know if you're looking for an alive person or a body. 110 members of the search party looked for any clues day and night, but there was no telling when their bodies would be found. Everyone at the Cedar Lodge was questioned about the night the women went missing, including the handyman, Carrie Stainer, and the night janitor, Billy Joe Strange, who was likely named solely... So he could be a suspect in a murder investigation at some point in his life. <laughs> his family had been the blunt of police investigations since the beginning of their history. Or maybe like that. Or maybe he was related to a certain time wizard from Marvel Comics, maybe? Were there any doctors in his family? Do we know? I, you know, I didn't look up his family tree. <laughs> That's unfortunately. too bad. That's peculiar. Peculiar. Strange was a parolee trying to live a quiet life in El Portal, make a semi-decent living, and stay out of trouble. He lived with his girlfriend, the front desk clerk at the lodge who happened to be working the night the woman vanished, and their roommate, Daryl Gray Stevens. Stevens is also a parolee with the same hopes as Strange. Doesn't living with another parolee violate your parole, like, um, automatically as soon as you guys, like, put your beds in the same room? I mean, you can't hang out with other felons. How do you line that up so you're not just automatically violating your parole? You'd still be at the same residence. I don't think they were enforcing this sort of... Yeah, no one was looking for them in this tiny yeah. little town. Something about the two men's stories just didn't add up to the FBI, 
So Strange was arrested on March 5th for violating his parole by consuming alcohol. It's a very common tactic in law enforcement to arrest someone on lesser charges and hold them in pending investigation of a crime they're suspected of committing. Makes it easier to interview them and also charge them if you're able to secure enough evidence against them during their stay in jail. They did the same for Stevens, who was arrested March 14th for failure to register as a sex offender. Now, what level of sex offender was he? Or does California not rate them by 42. levels? I don't know if they rate them. I'm sure they do. It's California. But yeah. I don't. It didn't specify. It didn't specify what sort of sex This was 99, yeah. too, so I don't know if they did it back then. Yeah, I don't know when Megan's Law kicked in or whatever. They but have. Level 1 sex offenders are active predators against children who are most likely to recommit the crimes that they already did, which is usually sexually assaulting children. Both men denied having anything to do with the possible kidnapping and murder of the three women, but police continued to hold them, hoping for evidence or a confession. So they just didn't give them the option to bond out? They made their bond, like, extremely high, $100,000, and they didn't make a whole lot of money, so... That's probably a standard for parole violation, right? On March 18th, the case broke wide open when a man who lived in a cabin in Yosemite called to report a car sitting in the forest, burned so badly it was a shell of what it used to be. The plastic license plate holder had melted in the fire, leaving the perfectly preserved plate lying on the ground. When the number was ran, it was confirmed to be the Grand Prix rented by Carol's son for their trip. Eighteen hours after the discovery, crime scene techs opened the trunk and found the badly burned bodies of Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. They didn't find Julie Sund at or anywhere near the crime scene. So, what are their theories at this point, do you know? That they were murdered. That's it? That's the only thing they've got? No, Rory, they think that they fell into the trunk together and accidentally closed on them, and then the sun was beating down on the car, and it lit it on fire. Yeah, that's real. That's what happens when you're camping. Yeah, camping is dangerous. But did they didn't have any solid leads at this point. They didn't think. It was just random. Yeah, basically. And when you have a really terribly burned vehicle, you have no evidence. Okay. Could you imagine if you did a murder-suicide that way and... Like, the cops would never know what happened. They'd be so... They would see the huge bullet hole in your skull if you killed yourself with a gun. No, you gotta get in there and and suck it up. You gotta be tough. You gotta burn to death to really throw them mm, off. Your body probably wouldn't let you do that. When no evidence was found in the car, and Strange and Stevens' alibis checked out, they were dropped as suspects. The FBI turned their attention to another ex-con, Eugene Dykes, a wannabe Hell's Angel and career criminal. What does a wannabe Hell's Angel mean slash look like? I mean, imagine a Hell's Angel. But what's a wannabe like? He kept trying to get in and they were like... And they never invited yeah, him. Yeah, he was just a hanger-on, like to go to their parties, like to hang out at the bars, like to... Oh, he was the Charlie. But he wasn't an actual member. He was the Charlie. Yeah. Dykes first denied having anything to do with the murders, but then decided he would be better off to just flat out confess. He told agents every detail with the minor problem that a lot of them were wrong. It didn't help that his story changed every time he told it, but FBI agents didn't seem to mind and stayed convinced they had their man. So what were there in what were the inconsistencies that were overlooked? Do you know? Before they found he was arrested before they found the bodies and he would constantly be like, Oh yeah, I'll show you where the bodies are and then just take him out to the forest and wander around for hours. Oh, that wasn't a pretty heavy sign that he didn't Apparently not. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> he had him stop at Dairy Queen on the way back every time and they were just like, I think this guy's playing us for a blizzard. 
They also arrested Michael Larwick, Dyke's half-brother, who had even more of a record, but much less of a propensity to confess to crimes he didn't commit. So, was Dyke's confessing just to get some street cred, or like, hoping to catch a murder rap without actually killing somebody? Because that's some wannabe Hell's Angel type shit, right? I think he just wanted to fuck with the cops. Like, but imagine if he was like, he got the rap, and they gets out, and he's like, yeah, guys, I, I'm a murderer. Look at this tattoo, it says I'm a murderer. And maybe they'll take him into the Hell's Angels. I'm sure they're not cool with killing 15-year-old girls. Yeah, and he had to have known that when you confess to killing two women, you're not going to get out of prison. Yeah. Well, so why was he confessing so To fuck with the police. Oh. It was also leaked that a woman who knew Dykes and Larwick had been using Carol's credit card number, something they believed proved that the three committed the crime. No one ever really figured out exactly how the woman got the card number, but she ran a massive credit card scam operation, so it was most likely blind luck. Yeah, the late 90s were kind of brutal time for credit card scams. People were all trusting and didn't have that same, like, hatred for humans and scab over their skin that came in the digital age. They didn't scream at telemarketers at 5 p.m. asking them for their credit card information? I mean, they probably did, but people back then were more gullible. There wasn't the credit card scam known scams at the point these are all these guys are all coming up with new shit that makes sense well there was a lot of shit to be invented in the 90s too hi ma'am it looks like you signed up for CompuServe. we went ahead and had a problem uh running your account information do you want to go ahead and give us your your money we went ahead and had a problem (laughs) we caused this and now we need you to fix it with your money do you want to be on the apprentice on march 24th the fbi received a letter that detailed exactly how the woman had been kidnapped and killed it also contained a roughly drawn map showing exactly where Julie's body would be found. When police and FBI agents went to the area the next day, she was exactly where the map said she would be. That's crazy. I wonder how often FBI gets those types of letters. Uh, do you think the killer felt guilty and wanted the body to be found, or is it kind of like, fuck you, find me type of thing, Zodiac style? I don't know. It's hard to say. I think it was a little bit of both, probably. Yeah? There was a lot that apparently had someone else lick the stamp that he put on it. So they wouldn't be able to take DNA off of it. <laughs> so he definitely thought through it. Imagine yes. if you just come up to somebody you're like, Hey, uh, could you look this stamp for me? My tongue's really dry. All you gotta say, hey, can you put a stamp on that envelope? If you have a, like a Fairly, assistant. Or you know, a, to anybody. Like if, 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 if I came over and was like, hey, Katie, will you put a stamp on an envelope for me? I wouldn't lick it though. Yeah, see, neither would I. Julie's throat had been cut so deeply that she was almost decapitated, and she had also been raped. Assuming someone had helped Dykes and Larwick, more men like them were arrested, all with criminal past, but no information on the case. Like they just raided a dive bar pool hall and hoped someone was a good catch? No. It's just like fishing for crabs. You throw out a big, huge net, and you just pull it back and hope you got some crabs in there with the fish? First, crabs are not caught with nets. (laughs) I've seen big crab catchers. Like, why didn't you call them fish? Why, 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 why? If you're talking about a throwing the net scenario, why are you using crabs? Because that's how you catch a big crab. If you're no, a big you, crab you king, catch them in crab the show traps. is called Big Crab Captain. Big Crab Captain. One of the biggest problems investigators ran into was that everyone they arrested were heavy meth users, which made talking to them very difficult. You know, methods aren't that bad to talk to if you really pay attention to what they're saying. You can actually learn quite a bit. Only if you have the ability to listen really, really fast. What yeah. have you learned from a method? Um, that I would look good in a really funny hat. 
By May, FBI agents went back to the hotel, hoping on finding a shred of evidence proving the men they locked up had actually committed the crime. They again interviewed all the employees at the Cedar Lodge, asking the handyman Carrie Stainer to use his master key to let them into every room to look for fiber evidence. Finding nothing, they continued to believe Dykes was their main suspect until July, when he finally ran out of stories and told them he'd been bullshitting the entire time. Dude, and he wasted so much time. I I bet the murderer, every murderer, wished they had some guy that would just confess to all the crimes they committed. I think in this case, the killer just got lucky, because I would have thought the first suspect might be the guy with the master key. They still continued to believe he was their man until the case broke wide open. On July 22nd, the decapitated body of Joey Armstrong was found in a drainage ditch just inside Yosemite. The night before, she had returned to her cabin from work around 5 p.m. She lived with her boyfriend and roommate, but both men were out of town, leaving Joey alone. She called her co-worker, who lived nearby and was only about a five-minute walk from Joey's cabin, and told her she would be by to drop off some paperwork. She never arrived, leaving an hour window between 6.30 and 7.30 that she was attacked and killed. So did she, she lived on the park grounds, right? Or just outside? No, she lived just inside, like the perimeter, so technically on federal property. The woman walked down to the cabin, but found nothing out of place and assumed Joey had just stepped out for a moment. At 3 a.m., the woman reported Joey missing, and the search began. Her body was found at 1.30 p.m., only a few hundred yards from her cabin. It took another few hours before they found her head, which was 40 feet away from her body. That's brutal. How how was the head removed? I don't know if he was telling the truth, but from what I heard was that he basically just took a knife and clean, clean cut it. Damn. But I don't know if I believe him. I don't know if I believe him either. That's a hard thing to do with just a knife, right? You got to get some sawing action, maybe a serrated blade. Yeah, that's what he did. Because when he cut um, Julie Sun's throat, he, I guess, cut her throat and just kept cutting. But it took him a couple hours to find the head that's 40 feet away from the body. I guess it was at like the bottom of a really small like ravine. Oh, man, that's crazy. Face up. So he definitely went there with the intention of killing her. No. I also don't know about that, because they said that he just went out and he, like, had his stuff on him, supposedly, but he didn't actually go to kill anybody, and then he saw her and was like, oh, might as well while I'm here. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Which Second. usually I don't think. I think there's generally a process where it's, I'm going to go kill someone. Okay. It's like an episode of Dexter where he's not planning to kill someone, but then he's like, oh, man, I really should kill this dude. I've got my knives on me. When police canvassed the area, a fire ranger recalled driving through the area the previous night and seeing a blue and white International Scout parked near Joey's cabin. A bolo was placed, and the car was found around 4.30 that afternoon. The owner was lying downhill on the shore of the river, smoking a joint, fully nude. A common practice for him. How did they know that this was common practice? Was it a nude river type thing going on where people just hung out in the nude? No, it was just him. He just liked to be naked. He's like, I call this Spread Eagle River. When police approached to question him, he happily introduced himself as Carrie Stainer. He let them search his car and backpack, but nothing suspicious was found, so he was sent on his way. He's just living that wacky California lifestyle. They just let him get away with smoking weed and being naked. They took the joint. <laughs> oh, of course. Their newfound suspect, Carrie Anthony Stainer, was born August 13, 1961, in Merced, California. He lived a relatively normal life, growing up first in the city and then on an almond farm. Carrie Stainer was well known around the Merced area for his brother, Stephen Stainer. On December 4, 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer disappeared while walking home from school. 
Unknown to his family, a man named Kenneth Parnell had solicited the help of a friend to abduct a little boy, and Stephen was their unlucky victim. Parnell told Stephen that his parents did not want him and chose Parnell to be his new court-ordered father, and that his new name would be Dennis Parnell. Stephen's hair was dyed before he was enrolled in school, and no one noticed the boy as a missing child. For seven years, Stephen was sexually abused, with Parnell estimating molesting the boy over 3,000 times. In 1979, and 200 miles away from Merced, Parnell decided that Stephen was too old for him and once again found help from a neighbor to abduct another child. That's a fucking scary pattern. They caught this guy, though, and sent him to a heavy-duty prison to be dealt with, right? Like, that, that happened. He was sentenced to seven years and served five. No fucking way. Because they only charged him with kidnapping, not sexual abuse. That's insane. Why were they not able to stick him with the sexual abuse? Um, at first, Stephen basically denied everything and said that nothing really happened. He just lived with the guy. So I don't know if it was based on that or if they ha- were going to have a hard time proving it in court. I don't know. But I still think you should get more than seven years for kidnapping a kid for five years. You should get at least two years for every year you kidnap them. For sure. This time, it was a five-year-old boy who was even more accepting of what lies Parnell was telling him. After two weeks living with the child, Stephen decided he could not let what happened to him happen to his new quote-unquote brother. The two walked and hitchhiked to the closest police station, where Stephen left the boy at the door with instructions on what to do once inside, and walked away, fully intending on going back to live with Parnell. The boy got scared when Stephen walked away and ran back to him crying, catching the attention of officers. When they caught up with the two, Stephen told police his real name for the first time in seven years. Parnell was arrested immediately, and Stephen returned home to his real family. I mean, he was probably incredibly fucked up, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no way to not be fucked up from that. Yeah, that's not exactly a normal childhood. It wasn't an easy adjustment to have Stephen home for any of the stainers. Stephen had no rules or boundaries growing up with Parnell and was addicted to tobacco and a borderline alcoholic when he returned home to a very strict Mormon household. I mean, a 12-year-old with a spit cup and the shakes is certainly enough to disrupt the peace of any household, let alone one where you can't wear colored underwear or eat Twizzlers. He and his parents did not get along for a long period of time, and neither did he and Carrie. Carrie was used to being the only son, doted on by his mother for the last seven years, and all of that changed when Stephen returned home. Journalists and reporters were constantly swarming the house, all wanting to speak to Stephen, shoving Carrie to the back of everyone's minds. Overnight, he went from favorite child to nobody. Things didn't come down as years went on, as the Stainers were contacted about making a docuseries on Stephen's life with Parnell, titled I Know My First Name is Stephen. After the film was done, a man contacted them about writing a book about the tragedy as well, bearing the same name. Stephen's notoriety was never ending in Merced, and money continuously flowed in from his film and book deals. Stephen grew more and more reckless as he grew older, eventually using a portion of his payouts to buy a motorcycle. In 1989, Stephen got into a serious accident while riding the bike without a helmet and died of massive head trauma. Even in his death, he remained more important than Carrie would ever be. That's kind of a fucked up way to look at that. Now, what, what kind of trauma does this cause in a kid Carrie's age? Like, does he get some sort of complex from it? More than likely. I mean, it definitely fucked him up because you go from, like, you have two parents to basically you're on your own now because everyone's focused on fixing your brother. So he kind of gets, like, a chip on his shoulder type of thing? Okay. Basically, he gets to see what all of this fame does for his brother, and his life is shit compared to that, so. It's a real Cain and Abel situation. Carrie went on to live with his uncle, who supported his dreams of being a cartoonist. 
Those dreams ended when the uncle was mysteriously murdered in 1991, found dead of two gunshot wounds to the head and one to the chest inside his home. Carey was never officially suspected by police, but much of the family grew to believe he was the killer. For all his good points, old Uncle Bill had one major issue, and he didn't appreciate a good tune when he saw one. No, he was probably really supportive, and the dude was just trying all sorts of evil monster shit. And he was just like, oh yeah, that's really good, son. Continue drawing. You're a great cartoonist. You will be a great cartoonist one day. And then this guy, since he wasn't used to receiving praise like that, <clears throat> killed the guy? I don't know. We can speculate a lot, but do we know why he did it? Or if he even did it? I don't even know if, if he did it, so okay. I can't speculate. I'm okay. sticking with it. He did it. Carrie went on to move to El Portal and get a job at Cedar Lodge, living an isolated life except that two to three times a year he would vacation at a nudist spa. He was the exhibitionist murderer. Sure. Okay. I feel like El Portal is just the portal to the nudist spa. You just gotta go to it, go in it, and you come out a nudist. It wasn't an El Portal. Oh. But you use El, El portal, portal as the portal. Is the portal to the Yosemite. Yeah, El Portal. El Portal. My Spanish is shining. After police spoke to Stainer and searched his car, he rushed back to Cedar Lodge and began packing his belongings. Before he could get away, police arrived and questioned him again, but were satisfied with his alibi and let him go. So, do we know what his alibi was? I don't know. Okay. The next morning, a tracking specialist confirmed the fresh tire tracks next to Joey's cabin matched Stainer's international scout. For the third time, they went to question him at the lodge, but discovered he was long gone. Of course he was gone, because they let him go twice, you know? Fool me three times a charm. He'd gone to his vacation spot, the nudist spa, and was enjoying his time thinking he got away with murder. Police had his picture blasted on the news and in the paper, and the next morning, other guests at the spa recognized him and called police. Now, Betty, I, I would recognize that tan line anywhere. Yeah, I'm sure it's him. Uh, his penis looks different on TV, but it's definitely him. Around 9 a.m., police and FBI agents arrived and told Stanier that he didn't have to come with them, but probably should. He only agreed when he learned that they were impounding his car. You can't argue with the man's priorities. He knew that that scout was going to be a priceless classic. What they he really wanted to do was to make sure that there was absolutely zero evidence in it, so when they took it, he knew his goose was cooked, right? I, I guess. I mean, he was basically not going to go with them. They said, hey, we just want to talk to you. Can you come with us? You can say no. That's totally fine. But we have to take your car just because. At the station, Stainer briefly attempted to pretend he was clueless, but quickly broke down and admitted to murdering and decapitating Joey Armstrong. Still believing they had their suspects in the Sun Peloso murders, police were shocked when Stainer also recounted in vivid detail murdering Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. He explained that on the night of February 15th, he knocked on the woman's hotel door and convinced them he needed to come into the room to fix a leak. Once inside, he pulled out his gun, telling them that they were just being robbed, and if they followed his orders, he would let them live. I think it's fair to say that if anyone tells you that, you should still just fight and scream, probably, for all you're worth, because... Well, it depends. If you're a mother and it's possible that your kids are going to get killed, if you do that, then you're not going to take the chance. I guess that's true. He bound their wrists and ankles with duct tape and gagged them, leaving Carol on the bed and taking Julie and Sylvina to the bathroom. He then used a rope to strangle Carol to death and carried her body to the trunk of the Grand Prix. He then put Julie on the bed before going into the bathroom and strangling Sylvina to death the same way as Carol. Julie, unaware her mother and friend were dead, was taken to another room while Sylvina was placed in the trunk. Stainer then wrapped Julie in a blanket and placed her still alive on the front seat of the Grand Prix. 
He drove for over an hour to the spot where Julie's body was found, cutting her throat and watching her slowly bleed to death. Fuck this guy. For real. Fuck this guy. He then drove down the highway looking for a spot to dump the car, eventually finding a logging road on which he got stuck on a tree stump. He left the car untouched and walked to a convenience store, where he called a cab to take him back to the lodge. It wasn't until a few days later that he returned and burned the car and women's bodies. Do you think that he was, wasn't originally planning to burn it and then he went home and he got paranoid thinking he'd left some evidence so he just decided to go back and torch it up so that he could try to burn away evidence? Most likely. Once in jail awaiting trial, Stainer seemed almost proud of what he had done. Against the wishes of his lawyer, he granted an interview to a reporter telling the man that he would entertain any offers if someone wanted to make a movie about his life like they had his brother. So it's safe to say that almost all of this was done to achieve like the notoriety that his brother had or he was trying to or... Basically. He told police he'd fantasized about killing women since he was seven. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming he had been sexually abused and suffered from OCD, which manifested in the form of him pulling out his hair, something he'd done since he was a child. He was found sane and guilty on four counts of first-degree murder in 2001. He was sentenced to die in his 2002 sentencing hearing, and as of today, none of his appeals have gone through, and he is still on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Good. That's kind of where he belongs. He should die there. It's going to be a horrible death for him. So, okay, when he came out and confessed to all of this, they had evidence to back it up, right? Not really. I don't think really they had a whole lot besides his confession. And it kind of matched up with the way Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it was like spot on. He knew a bunch of stuff that no one else could have known, so they had to believe him. Any motivation for why he did it, just because... The notoriety doesn't thing doesn't make sense if he didn't like instantly say like yeah I'm the killer or like do more to yeah I think there was definitely something going on that he'd always fantasized about doing it I'm just not sure why he waited so long well isn't it uh, usually men in their mid thirties like early to mid thirties that start their yeah but murders? he had done no- really nothing violent if he didn't actually kill his uncle he had. Nothing in his past that would... Rory and I are right on the edge. So is that going to do it this week for Carrie Stainer? Mm-hmm. That's it. Pretty fucked up. This guy was crazy. Super fucked up. Everyone that knew him said he was a very, very nice guy. And that's how it always is. Yeah. All right, guys. If you have any questions, comments, or concern, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Four Corners Crimecast, on Instagram at Four Corners Crimecast, and on Twitter at Four Corners Crime. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list uh, to send us ideas for an episode or to get your free sticker from our merch, for- merch store. Just enter the code Bingo Bango at checkout and we'll ship your sticker 100% for free. And just remember, stay away from the nice old man. He was 38 Oh, when he did this. He wasn't an old man. Okay, so stay away from the nice young man who's creepy with his keys jangling around the forest. Yep. Here, he's after your lucky charms. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Three of the ten highest waterfalls in the world are located in Yosemite National Park in California.